Uh, to be honest, I've been looking forward to, to uh, speaking about these next two passages from 1 Thessalonians for quite some time now. Um, they're interesting, aren't they? And I do also love Psalm 119, what we just read. Thanks, Brooke, for reading that. <coughs> Wonderful. It's good to be together this morning. The sun's shining, spring is coming. Um, it, is, it is excellent. Good to be together. Um, you know, I think you're in a bit of darkness over there. Rod, can we... Um, there you go. Let there be light. Wonderful. Thank you for that. All right, friends, let's... Um, hopefully you've got 1 Thessalonians 4 open in front of you. If you don't, uh, just grab that open. There's an outline in your bulletin as well, which would be helpful for you to follow along. There we go. Well, let's, let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word, which is a light, a lamp unto our feet. Lord, we pray that you would guide us today. Uh, Father, help me to speak clearly. We pray that we are encouraged by what we hear, the good news of Jesus, as we await, uh, Lord Jesus, your return. Amen. I reckon most of us love to make plans having our future mapped out before us, don't we? Uh, all falling into place smoothly. It might be saving up to buy a car, uh, saving up for that long-awaited holiday, the retirement portfolio, giving good returns, uh, getting a place in university, having a baby, getting the job you've worked so hard for. Or even, as we've thought about in the last few weeks, if you're following the Olympics, setting those plans, putting those plans together to win that elusive gold medal. Life mapped out neatly, our confidence resting on those plans working out. But then something happens. A tragedy strikes. Our hopes come crashing down. It's not easy at this point to pick ourselves up again and go again to rekindle hope, is it? Sometimes we actually need to step back and see the, the bigger picture. We need the, the bigger framework so we can see how things might yet turn out for the best in the end. This is the situation at Thessalonica. Tragedy has struck we read that some believers had died, but Jesus had not yet returned. Plans had been made, hopes, but now hopes and expectations have come crashing down. What happens to Christians who die? Would their loved brothers and sisters in Christ miss out? Would they be disadvantaged when Jesus comes again? And is Jesus coming back for that matter? And when? What confidence is there for those who die in Christ? That's the situation we find with the Thessalonians. That's the problem which Paul now addresses in the next six verses. The church at Thessalonica had lost hope and needed their hope rekindled. They had no confidence in death. So Paul wants them to see the bigger picture. Specifically, as we'll follow along in our outline, you can see we're on sort of point one now, uh, this problem of hopelessness. Paul wants them to, he doesn't want them to be ignorant. 
For such ignorance leads to grieving like the rest of men. So he wants them to know the basis of the Christian hope. He wants them to focus on the Lord Jesus returning, that the focus of that hope, and, and then how we should respond. For in their ignorance, and I guess three weeks probably, I guess three weeks wasn't enough for them, for Paul to cover everything. He spent three weeks in the church at Thessalonica with them. In their ignorance, they didn't know what would happen to a believer when he or she died. And so in verse 13, we read that these Christians grieved like those who don't know Jesus. They grieve like the rest of men. They grieve like those who have only wishful thinking about what happens to them when they die. They grieve with uncertainty. They're going to a better place now, they might say. They're with the angels now they might say, or released like a butterfly, they're now surfing the big wave in the sky. Paul reminds them that being in Christ not only makes a difference in how they live, remember last week, in how we control our own body, not in passionate lust like non-believers, and Jesus makes a difference in how we love each other. Jesus makes a difference in how we work and spend our time. But being a Christian, being in Christ means we grieve differently. We think and live, we live differently about death, if I can put it that way. We grieve with hope and confidence about the future. For the Christian hope, the hope we read in the Bible, is very different than the hope of the rest of men. It's not wishful thinking or unlikely it's real and certain so let me explain let me illustrate so let's for a man imagine for a moment that i'm going to conduct a wedding next saturday now i do have one coming up but next saturday works better for the illustration anyway next saturday i turn up to the rehearsal on friday night after taking everyone through the service we have a bit of fun together we're walking down the aisle practicing and all that sort of stuff playing a bit of music uh practicing saying bits and pieces i turn to the groom and i say to him well, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. And now that's, that's really an expression or a wish that something nice might happen, isn't it? That's what we're doing. And on the basis of Robertson winter or maybe the Robertson spring, I reckon the likelihood of rain on the wedding day is about 50-50. Is, is that being too, too pessimistic? Maybe it is, I don't know. So that's the way we think, that's the way we tend to use the word hope. Well, it'd be nice but it's uncertain. That's the way we do it. Isn't that right? However, suppose I then turn to the bride-to-be and say, pointing to the groom, and by the way, I hope he turns up tomorrow. <laughs> and she may well respond, I certainly hope so. See, now by saying that, she does not mean it'll be nice, but it's uncertain. <laughs> yeah, it's not 50-50, is it? <laughs> That's right. She means that on the basis of all she knows up to this point, she is confident about what she does not yet know and what has not yet happened. That's the Christian hope. Do you see the difference? It's not a wouldn't it be nice but probably won't or 50-50. That's not that sort kind of hope. No, the Christian hope is real and certain. It's on the basis of what God has already accomplished 
and revealed that gives the Christian person confidence about what they do not yet have. So then, what's the basis of the Christian hope? We're on point two in our outline. Verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Do you see it? Do you see the basis of the Christian hope? We believe that Jesus died and rose again. The death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the foundation or basis for all that Paul will say next. So how does the resurrection of Jesus help when we grieve over the loss of a friend who, like you, trusts in the Lord Jesus? Two ways. First, the resurrection of Jesus is the model for the resurrection of believers. In the same way that Jesus genuinely died and rose to new life, so believers can expect the same. Paul says believers will die or fall asleep with the promise of rising to new life in Christ. Paul uses the term fallen asleep uh, to show that just like in sleep, that is not the end. That is, we wake up from sleep. So with death in Jesus, in Christ, that is not the end. What has happened to Jesus will happen to every believer who has died. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul writes again that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of a resurrection harvest of believers. That's the picture we ought to have in our minds to help us understand. I, I can't help but imagine that uh, beautiful red soil, I guess a few months back now, uh, down on Pearson's Lane, I don't know whose farm it is actually, but uh, it, it is just so bright and red and then... Uh, not long after that, a few weeks later, the harvest starts to burst through. And we get this big splash of green, and I think it's potatoes as they, as they come through. It is just beautiful and fantastic. That's that sort of picture, this great harvest, and Jesus is the first fruits of that great harvest. That's the promise for all those who belong to him. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of, of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. But where are the believers until Jesus returns? Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that when Jesus returns, we'll get a, we'll, a believer, a Christian, will get their resurrected body, like Jesus' resurrected body. And again, that's one of those questions that we don't have a lot of time, we, we won't, doesn't come up in this passage here. Uh, maybe we'll spend some time uh, next week on that. But where do the believers go until Jesus returns? Have you thought about that? Is there, is there some sort of intermediate state, uh, a halfway house, perhaps, um, purgatory maybe, as, as uh, Catholic tradition would have it? But there's, not, there's no biblical evidence for that. Let's go back to verse 14. We simply read that they are with Jesus. Jesus comes with those who are dead in Christ. 
In other words, the, the dead in Christ are with Jesus. Like the criminal on the cross, next to Jesus uh, on, that, on, that on that day, on the crucifixion day, who asked Jesus to remember him. And Jesus' answer, he answers with, Today you will be with me in paradise. This ought to be of great comfort when we grieve the loss of a Christian brother or sister. So, second, the resurrection of Jesus is not just the model or the pattern, it is the means or pathway of the resurrection of believers. From the very beginning of this letter that we've been studying over these last weeks, Paul has reminded these Christians that because of Jesus' death for our sin and his resurrection, they are, 1 verse 1, they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that they are in the Lord. It's a phrase that comes up quite regularly. God has drawn them to himself. Uh, we might summarise that and we can call it grace. Each believer is already united to Christ. They are with him, united with him. Death does not change that status. To put it very simply, to have the resurrected life that Jesus offers, one must believe in him. He is the means of such life, eternal life. He's the pathway. He's the gate, as Jesus says. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Remember a few weeks back, um, we used the illustration of being in Christ was like being in the plane. Not under it, not, not behind it, not over it, but in the plane. That's what it means to be in Christ. So whatever happens to the plane happens to those who are in it. In other words, as the follower of, as the follower of Jesus is in Christ, trusting in him, whatever happens to Jesus happens to them. So friends, we need to see that the Christian hope and confidence in death is not based on free-floating feelings and experiences or wishful thinking, but it's anchored firmly in the historical foundation of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's its basis. So then, how would all this happen, this return of Jesus? Well, let's now turn our attention to verses 15 to 17. Not every question we might have, or, for the, or the Thessalonians, for that matter, had, is answered in the following verses. Um, we'll get to some more of those questions in a moment and also probably next week. But Paul's focus continues to be to encourage believers to focus on the risen Lord Jesus, finding their hope and confidence in him. So we're on point three of our outline, the, the, the Christian hope, the return of Jesus. In verse 15, Paul doesn't speculate about the future. You see those first words he says there? What's he, what he says next is according to the Lord's own word. Paul is either following on from Jesus' teaching, uh, possibly from what we read in Matthew 24, or perhaps Paul is again reminding them that his words as an apostle come with the authority of Jesus. These are not his words, but the Lord's. Paul's focus in verses 15 to 17 is on Jesus. Have a look at them. On that final day, he will return, verse 15. This will happen when he comes from heaven with the result that believers will be with him forever. The focus is on Jesus. Be assured, Paul says to these grieving Thessalonians, Jesus will keep his promise. 
He is coming. He will return in glory. And as we read in chapter 1, verse 10, uh, waiting on this promise, endurance inspired by hope, that phrase, waiting on this promise of Jesus' return, living for Jesus' return, is central to how we respond to the Christian gospel. But Paul, in his description of the return of Jesus, also wants to make, make clear that whether it's believers who have died or are believers who are alive when Jesus returns, no one misses out. No one is disadvantaged. Keep your focus on Jesus. He keeps his promises. That's Paul's, Paul's focus. Not really details. For he wants his readers to be encouraged and their hope and confidence rekindled as they grieve for lost church members in Thessalonica. Let me put it this way. I'm a, I'm a lover of sprinting and um, I can put together a really fast five or ten metres these days. Um, <laughs> before a hammy goes, I'm going like this. But anyway, I, love, I used to love sprinting and I used to do it myself. And I love watching the relay races at the Olympics. I love the sprint 4x100, which is the, uh, the one around the track. Um, four runners, one, one lap. This year, once again, the Jamaicans were victorious with Usain Bolt uh, anchoring and completing the win. The first runner takes up the baton and runs the first leg, that first little corner, as fast as possible before he hands on the baton. All their race is now finished. And there is little to do other than to stand at the side and encourage those other runners in their team. They cheer on as eventually the final runner breaks the tape and comes in first. However, when the medals are awarded, it's not just Usain Bolt, the final runner, who stands at the podium. Each of the four athletes in the team receive gold medals. None will be forgotten. Even though some of them had long finished their role when the, when the race was finally won. In a similar manner, Paul wants to provide assurance that those believers who had already finished their earthly race would certainly not be forgotten at the end when Jesus returns. So, let's go back now. And have a go at answering some of these questions that we might have. I reckon you might have a few. Although some, such as, well, where does judgment fit in with this? Uh, what about that? And what about the timing of this? When's it going to happen? Well, that'll be next week. So you've got to come back next week, don't you? There you go. Make sure you're there for that. Jesus' triumphant return is described using the language of a royal entry. This is not unfamiliar to us. Like a king or a queen at a special occasion, where a command is given to stand as royalty enters the room. So in verse 16, Jesus returns with a loud command. Most likely it's a reference to Jesus' word. The word of God which gives life. The word of God which raises the dead. Think Lazarus. Jesus speaks a word and Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Jesus will give the command and the dead in Christ will rise first, we're told. Now, it's likely that this loud command is his judgment. 
In Jesus' words in Matthew 25, separating the sheep from the goats, the believers from the non-believers. Second, there's a voice of the archangel. I think linking back to 3 verse 13, which describes Jesus' return with all his holy ones. Have a look at 3 verse 13. May he strengthen your hearts so that you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. He comes with his angelic beings. Um, There's a trumpet call, finally, like that of a royal entry announcing, announcing the king's arrival. Again, that's not unfamiliar to us to imagine or think about it. Uh, will it be an actual trumpet? <laughs> I don't think so. There's a lot of metaphors going on here. I'll come back to that point in a moment, though. But what, what, have, what are those believers who are alive at the time? Well, verse 17 says, They will be caught up together with them. That's the dead in Christ, those asleep who have been raised first. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Notice the focus again is on our relationship with Jesus, that we will, be, we will meet him and be with him forever. It's the end of verse 17. And although there is a resurrection order, so the dead in Christ first, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that this event will be in the twinkling of an eye. So what's described here are events that are virtually instanta- instantaneous. There's no real time gap between one and the other, Paul says. Okay, so what do we make of this clouds metaphor then? And I think it is a metaphor. I don't think it's to be read literally uh, like some ad on TV with angels flying around with wings and harps and that sort of thing. I don't think that's the image we ought to get. Again, we don't get a lot of detail. And perhaps this will open up more questions for you than answers. Um, And that's okay, by the way. But remember that these details are not... Paul's focus. Remember Paul's focus. Encouragement for those who, those who have lost Christians, Christians and their churches who have died. Well, in the Old Testament, clouds often symbolise the presence of God. And in Revelation chapter 1 and Mark 13, Jesus is described as coming on the clouds in his return. We sing a song at 9.30 and also in the evening, uh, see him coming, see him coming on the clouds of heaven. It's a direct quote from Revelation 1 verse 8. So here is a picture of Jesus' divine presence. That is what's on show here. Clouds are visible and public. We see them coming, particularly if you live in beautiful areas like where we live in, we can see the clouds coming. Um, (laughs) So will Jesus' return be. It'll be visible and public. No one will miss it. Jesus won't return quietly or secretly. It'll be known by all and he'll come in victory. It'll be victorious. It'll be an event like no other. The Bible describes this event in unashamedly supernatural detail. You get that? And that's that's difficult to imagine, isn't it? It is difficult to imagine what that will be like. But it's entirely believable. Maybe foolishness in the world's eyes. But it's entirely believable. Why? Why is it entirely believable? Why should we rest on this hope? Why should we believe this? 
Why should we have confidence in death and in Jesus' return? Well, we go back to point two of our outline. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because of the foundation, because of the basis. Well, what do we do with all this? What should the church at Thessalonica, the church at Robertson, do now? Verse 18. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. That is the right response. Therefore, because of what they now know, they now no longer are in ignorance. They should now no longer grieve like those who have no hope. Instead, they ought to encourage one another with these words. Talk about them. Sing about them. Preach about them. Pray about them. That those who trust in the Lord Jesus have a real and certain hope and confidence in death because of the resurrection of Jesus and his coming return. Friends, if you do not have this confidence then come to Jesus today. Talk to him. Say sorry for your rejection of him and put your trust in him. And on that day, when Jesus returns, well, that can be a day of great joy rather than a day of great sorrow. We need to see that, like last week, not only does Jesus make and his gospel make a difference in how we live, but Jesus makes a difference in how we grieve, how we think about death, Now, funerals of followers of Jesus ought to be different because we don't grieve like the rest of men. Yes, we grieve at the loss of a brother or sister in Christ. We miss them dearly, but we grieve with the hope and confidence that comes from trusting in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the real and certain hope we have in Jesus. Lord, we long... For his return, and we say as 1 Corinthians 16 says, come Lord Jesus, come. But Lord, in the meantime, let us live for you. Lord, let us live uh, lives worthy of the calling we have received as Christian people being in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the sure and certain hope we have in Jesus. Lord, it's not unlikely, it's not... Uh, It's not uncertain. But Lord, because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we can be sure and certain. So Lord, we put our trust in you. And Lord, we come uh, to you with that, uh, that confidence we can have. In Jesus' name, amen.